Ladies and gentlemen, as part of the Jeremiah Show, welcome to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Now here's the host of the show, a man whose worst day and best day in show business happened on the same day on Saturday Night Live. It's TV's Tim Stack. Yeah, 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 Tim Stack. He's unbelievable. Um, welcome everybody. I'm going to tell a quick story, even though Kat said I couldn't tell a quick story. I'm going to tell you it's a quick story. Um, so the best and worst day on Saturday Night Live, uh, there's a long Saturday Night Live story, which I, I think I've told. But, um, the other follow-up one was that I'm a big baseball guy and I love the Yankees. I'm a huge Yankees fan. Well, after my short time at Saturday Night Live, which was abysmal, and it was just, I, I felt so low. I knew it wasn't working out. It was not good. Nobody liked me. <laughs> you know, it's just go, it was just bad. But by the, what, by the end of it, one of the hosts on the last week was Billy Martin, the great baseball manager for the Yankee baseball player, great baseball manager. And I didn't know him, but he used to come into a bar that I worked in in New York called the Lone Star Cafe. And Billy used to get hammered and he liked to fight. And so I knew he liked country western bars because the Lone Star Cafe was a country western bar. But I never got, I never saw a fight, but you could just see in his eyes like, don't say the wrong thing to Billy Martin if he's had a couple of the bourbons that I had poured him. <laughs> So he then comes to host Saturday Night Live, and I reminded him of the Lone Star. He goes, oh, I love that place, love the place. I ended up writing a country song for the show that did not make it in. Actually, Senator Al Franken is the one who passed on my song, but Billy loved it. And all week he kept saying, why are we doing that song? That's what I really want to do, that song. And I kept saying, well, talk to Al Franken. You know, it's like I had no, no power. But come Saturday, now, I have nothing to do. It's the last night, and Billy Martin is watching a Yankee game in his dressing room. And I walk by, and he yells, hey, Tim, 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 come on in, come on in. So the best day of show business for me ever, when I look back like, oh, my God, I got to do that, was I watched an entire Yankee game with Billy Martin. And it was an experience like no other where he just, he knew what was going to happen. He's calling every, he, then he's telling me Mickey Mantle stories. And he's just, it was the greatest three hours of my show business life. So that's my best day, worst day uh, story from show business. Thank you. <laughs> so um, let's uh, let's do some. Uh, let's get the intro going, Doctor D. There's that drum roll. This is going to take a while. Okay, this is not a quick intro. They are writer producers, mostly of television, but now getting into the movies, the animated world, because they have a new Pixar movie coming out called Elemental. In television, they're the writer-producers of Gallivant, Downward Dog, American Housewife, Better Off Ted, My Name is Earl, that's where we met, and Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the animated X-rated version. Oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding about that. Please meet the husband-wife writing team of Kat Lickle and John Hoberg. Yay! Hello. Hello. Yay, what an intro. I, I have to say, I also did Rugrats. 
Before pre-John. I, I want to talk about Rugrats. You brought it up first. Well, we're going to talk about how you met and all that, because that's all super interesting and how writing as a husband and wife. I do want to say, as long as you brought up Rugrats, uh, you wrote on Rugrats. There's a character on this. Also, because John and Cat were nice enough to hire my son, Doyle, as a PA on their show. So one Halloween... When Doyle was very little, he was like five years old. He had a friend named Cameron, who's now on TV. He's doing pretty well. He wasn't five years old when we hired him. You need to make that. No, he was six. They waited until he was six. Um, (laughs) So one Halloween, the two boys decided to go as Chucky for Halloween. So Cameron, this really nice kid, comes to the house as Chucky from Rugrats. Well, Doyle, who you know, gets dressed as Chucky with the knife from the murder movies, which really speaks to our good parenting. That's what it really speaks to. These kids were like, I thought you were Chucky. Yeah, I thought you were Chucky. Oh, apparently you see different movies. Um, Doyle was, by the way, Doyle was so deeply loved at Galavan. And and at one point, (laughs) it's my favorite Doyle thing, is they... Somehow our lunches were being cut off because Kat and I were now producing in England and the writers were back and, and, you know, the studio knew the writers really weren't doing much anymore. So they cut off the writer's lunch budget. Oh, and we got a call in England that said, who is Doyle Stack? And we're like, what do you mean? And they're like, he just wrote the most aggressive email demanding that lunches be reinstated. And I think, I think Rick and Kenny, who are our seconds, told Doyle to write to the studio. Yes. And he did. But we, we read it. I mean, it was like, it felt like the CEO of Disney was writing this wildly confident, like, this is unacceptable letter. That is so funny. I think funny. they got their lunches, they got their lunches back. We're afraid of this Doyle. I don't know. You know, Doyle... Uh, cried when Gallivant was canceled, and then he oh. cried again when the Millers was. Ca- I mean, he cried like, "What do you mean they canceled Gallivant? They, you don't do that. You don't cancel." Gal- <laughs> he made the right move getting out of show business. It's like <laughs> cancellation right, every time something happened. <laughs> I know his life would be spent crying. Yeah. Uh, anyway, welcome to the show. I did. I I also saw your very funny, um, which I want to share. Your very funny IMDb bios. So it says John Hoberg's TV showrunner, best known for Galavan, blah, blah, better off, Ted. He has been married to Cat Lickle since 1999. They have 14 children and two dogs. <laughs> then Cat Lickle quickly says the same thing. And no, she and John Hoberg do not have 14 children. <laughs> but I love that that's on IMDb, that that's out there. Did you see also I said I majored in spelling? Yes, in college that you went to. Yes. And grammars. It's I, <laughs> that's right. We, we, had a, we had a habit of uh, sitting around and like, I don't know, we get bored. We don't have kids. And we're like, I wonder if you can adjust your own bio. And we did that. Yeah. And then, Kat, do you remember the other one that we did? Where You know how you have your logo that you put on? Yeah, uh, sure. You know? uh, we were at a deal at Disney. And so we have the, there's those glass doors <laughs> in the old animation. Yeah. <laughs> And we didn't really have a logo that we knew what it was. And I had a high fever. And then we had gotten a memo that said the the, uh, logos uh, could be censored if they went over the line. And uh, so immediately we took that as a challenge. Like, can we, because we wanted yeah, the memo that says your logo has been censored. Yeah. And we didn't care about a logo. We just wanted the memo. <laughs> so we, uh, we, I, we searched the internet and found there's some statue in Norway or something of a naked man fighting off babies. And it's like totally <laughs> naked and there's babies everywhere. Dangling from him. 
Inkling it. So we, we found it and turned it into a logo and submitted it. Yeah. And, uh, and we came in like two days later after I was feeling better and it was already on the glass door and it was there for like six years. <laughs> oh my God. That's great. <laughs> anyway, I think Doyle wrote a memo to get that approved too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he did. Um, Doyle was the best. Yeah. Doyle was the best. Thank you. Thank you. So um, there's so much, I'm looking at my list here of so much, so many excellent shows and shows that like, and again, Gallivant got canceled. There are fans of your shows that are hardcore fans, like the musical people for Gallivant, the animal people for Downward Dog. You must get that a lot. I mean, I know there are followings for those shows. Yeah, there definitely yeah. are. And I mean, and we have to give credit where it's due. Like uh, Dan Fogelman created uh, uh, Gallivant, who's a brilliant writer. And uh, Sam Hodges and Michael Killen created Downward Dog. We came in to kind of carry the torch and we're part of, you know, writing both of those shows the whole way through and ended up running. And, but, uh, and both of those shows were canceled pretty quickly into the run. So it's like, I'm not sure that we're the people you should, <laughs> you want to pick up the torch. <laughs> That's right. We pick up the torch and run right into water. <laughs> no, there are. There, there, the torch. I feel like the Gallivant group. So Tim Omenson played the king in that. Yes. Who's a brilliant uh, actor. And he goes to, he was in, uh, what was it called? Lucifer or something? Like one of these shows that has huge conventions. And so he'll go to these conventions and he's like, a huge number of the people are there actually for Gallivant and they want to talk to him about Gallivant. That's funny. Him. They paid the money to go to the, like the sci-fi convention, but to talk about Gallivant. Yeah. Talk about Gallivant. That's funny. Yeah, it was, it was a, honestly, it was, both of those were such special experiences because, you know, with Dan, I mean, he just, he's, he knows what he wants. And he also gets what he wants, you know, and he's the nicest guy and the studios love him, but they trust him so much. But so we moved to England. So Dan basically did the pilot, brought us in. He knew he didn't want to move to England. And so he basically sent us off to England with the marching orders. And I've never heard this from a creative person before. He said, I'll only be mad at you guys if you do what you think I want. Uh, you want if you do uh, what you think I want you to do versus you do what you think is right. Oh my god! And he followed through on that. It's he like said, we had to make major choices. Yeah. On the fly. And then a couple of times you would he would he would sort of get a really, and we'd be like, "This is it. I'm serious, Dan. It's like we really have to go here to shoot. We have to go to the whatever it was. We have to go to the ocean to swim. You know, it was. Yeah. He let us. But we had these like crazy moments there because it's like you're renting out castles and you're shooting in castles and stuff. And so we had rented a monastery for one day and it was so busy all the time from tourism. We could only have it for that one day. And we also had Weird Al Yankovic coming in from a, like a tour of Europe. And also he was only available really great one guy. Day. And somehow nobody figured out that there was a NATO summit across the river in, in Wales. And so bombers were flying over every seven minutes. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> like, oh, we're trying to film. You're not just holding for and a so plane, you to... you're holding for bombers. Bombers. And you would, like the sound guy, like bomber, bomber coming in. <laughs> and we'd all just wait and it would shake the whole thing. And then we would now go. we know what the blitz felt like. Yeah. You get, yeah. You get but... strafed with machine gun fire. <laughs> That's right. Right. We all had to hide in the bushes every time it happened. But so you'd have to make these major like cuts and changes suddenly 
so you know things would fall out right and uh it was great it was so much fun and we had so much creative support yeah but it's not just gallivant going to england one of the things i was thinking about when i was uh, putting together my notes for my interview which I did this morning during the uh, Capitol uh, January 6th hearings. So the <laughs> word inter- insurrection is going to get mentioned a lot in this interview. <laughs> Are you going to indict us? Yeah. By the end Are of the show, you get indicted. Indictment? Yeah, you're mentioned. We're in in indi- you're one of the others they kept talking about. <laughs> John Hoberg and Cat Lickle and John Eastman. Um, so, but, but, and, and maybe it's the no kid thing, but you have been able to not just go on location, but you're in your careers, you've lived other, like you got to live other, like literally live there and absorb the culture. I'm looking at the list, like um, with, you went to New York with hope and faith, right? You lived in New yeah. York for that yeah. Pittsburgh for downward dog, which I went also was there, which is kind of cool. It's fun to, you know, it's, Love it's cool. It's England city. for Gallivant. And then you were in San Francisco for how long? Like two years on the Pixar movie? No. Well, no, because of the pandemic. We were actually there for four months, five months, John. No, it wasn't even that. I think it was like two. It felt, you know, it's. It felt longer. But you but were describing was, like you had this really cool apartment in downtown San Francisco. And it's like it that was stuff great. doesn't it get to happen. It was the greatest. We lived at the greatest place. We decided and- we'd, we'd never lived in San Francisco. We always wanted to. And so we got a place, an apartment in the city. And then we would go against traffic to Emeryville. Uh, in the morning, but we, we left, I always think of it as the day Tom Hanks got COVID was kind of like, Oh, it's getting real. Yeah. And I remember we went to whole foods like two days before Tom Hanks got it and people were buying like big blacks, bags of flour, but sort of apologetically like, Oh, I'm embarrassed. I, I'm not really panicking. Right. And then the day after Tom Hanks got it, we went to whole foods. We saw a guy put his, he had a shopping cart. He put his arm on the bean aisle and just went like cans of beans. And just put all the cans of beans in the shopping cart. And we're like, we're getting out of here. Like, yeah. And luckily, we'd just been sent on our first draft of the, the movie. And so we packed everything in our car and just drove to Pasadena. So we're like, the world's shutting down. And yeah. we don't want to be stuck yeah. in the apartment. But it, was, it, was like a, it was like watching a disaster movie happen. Because it, it came to San Francisco. It's like, before we all knew that it was COVID, it's like you heard about Tom Hanks getting sick. And then we had like one of the directors for one of the movies had just come back from Italy and everybody was talking about he was sick. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't never officially COVID. It wasn't talked about as COVID. And I don't think we really knew what it was, but you could feel it circling you. And then every day we lived across the bay from Oakland so we could look out our window. And do you remember the big ocean liner that was um Yes. Uh, quarantined. And it was parked on the other side of the bridge, the Oakland side of the bridge. And we would drive over the bridge and you could see the people who were quarantined basically standing at the railings, like, get me out of here. Would and you we're wave like, to them? Oh, like- it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. Hi. Right. Hi, we're COVID. Hi, quarantine. <laughs> Right. And we're like, can you imagine being quarantined on something as tiny as a, a, a huge ship? And then pretty soon we're all stuck. <laughs> like a bedroom. I spent I spent the pandemic in this room. <laughs> well, it looks pretty good uh, on the Room Raider thing. Okay, we're going to take our first break. We're talking to John Hoberg and Kat Lickle, two of my favorite friends and writing team and husband and wife writing team. We're going to find out more about them when we come back on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Hey, everybody. It's Tim Stack from It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack asking you to watch the show Sprung. 
on Freebie, Amazon's new free channel. I promise you it's funny, it's got heart, and my shoulder appears in episode three. Hey, we are back with It's Radio with TV Stim Stack. My friends Kat Lickle and John Hoberger here, great writers. Um, now, did you guys recognize that music? You know, we could barely hear it. It was chopping in and yeah. out just because of the Zoom, I think. Oh, so I that was a clip from, which I'm trying to trace. We're going to get to how you two met. But I, okay. according to IMDb, which isn't right about anything, <laughs> did you meet on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? No, I was there by myself on that show. You were there by yourself. I was trying to go back to the beginning of both your times and see which one matched. I obviously made a mistake. Oh, well, I I also had a Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, but that was pure nepotism because Kat and I were dating. Oh, I, yeah. Kat got me a script at one point. Yeah, I, <laughs> oh, really? So you, yeah. you used her to get a script is what happened. Right. I got a script. That's why I dated Kat to begin with. I wanted that Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, the TV show script. Let's be honest. He got a script because he was fucking the producer. Okay. That word, it's radio. And there's that F-bomb we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but worth it. Um, so uh, so what, what... Let me let me go back to the very beginning. Okay. So Kat, you are from, is it Kansas? Yeah, I was I was born in Michigan. And when I was about 15 years, uh, 15, 15, I guess, my parents were divorced. My mom moved to a tiny town in Kansas. She married. She did the cliche of marriage. She was a nurse and she married the doctor. She had an affair and married the doctor she worked for. And then ended really? up moving to this little tiny town in Kansas called Colby, Kansas. Famous for a John Denver song, one line Mm -hmm. in a John Denver song, Uh born just south of Colby, Kansas. And it's a town of like three to five thousand people out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I went to high school there. Right. So you're from Kansas and then John is from Columbus, Ohio. And neither one I would call hotbeds of comedy. Like, <laughs> you know what, when you are, when you're in, I, w- I won't speak, John can talk about Columbus, but when you're in Colby, Kansas, and there's like five people in your, I think, well, yeah, it's it, it just like, you got to be funny. You, you've got to right, find some no humor choice. in it. Otherwise you die. You got to find something to do. Yeah, yeah. you got to find something to do. So you look in the mirror and tell jokes. Do I like that one? Yeah, that one funny? funny. Now it made me laugh. Yeah, you want to watch the corn girl? No, I'm going to tell jokes. Um, So then, uh, so John, also from Columbus, and you had on on your IMDb, it says, went to Skidmore College, majored in spelling, whistling, and grammars. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yep. (laughs) I love those things. You follow your passions. So, uh, and I'm looking at, again, I'm going off IMDb. Cat's early credits include Angela... Anaconda, Anaconda. Yeah, yeah. and Angry Beavers, also X-rated. Yeah. Um, Named after me. <laughs> and then, so John, was your first credit, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? My first job, I, I had moved out with a, a different writing partner. Kat doesn't know this, so don't tell her. Okay. But like from, I, I'd been working in book publishing in New York. And I did, I don't think I knew you could write television. I don't even cross my mind. Like I just, I thought it was, it's, 
And it's not like today, like there weren't really classes in it or anything. But anyway, so I was working in book publishing and met these two writers, Ellen Sandler and Cindy Shupak, who um, were working on Coach at the time. Yeah. And then went on to my, everybody loves Raymond and Cindy on Sex in the City and stuff. But they were doing a pilot about a woman who starts a literary agency in her house. And so then they basically uh, wanted to interview anyone. And I was like the lowest person in this little agency. And they, I was like, I'd love to talk to you. And then that's when it was like, wow, you can do this for a living. And they said, just write two spec scripts. You know, you can send them to us if you want. We'll read them and tell you if we think there's you're, you're any good. And so I had met a guy and the two of us wrote a couple spec scripts and uh, and sent them out to them. And they the, the shortest version is they, they're like, yeah, this these feel pretty good. You know, you got a lot of work to do, but they feel decent. And so we moved out and then just cat hates how lucky this was. I showed up moved out. And within a month, they were like, you know what? We need a development assistant for our overall deal. Do you want to do that? And so I ended up becoming their assistant. And I had a, they, I was in the copy room at coach and they moved the copier out and, and it was right in the hallway with all the other uh, writers, uh, the coach writers. And I wasn't a writer on it. I was an assistant, but I would, I would just sit there and they would all talk out story and everything in the hallway. So it was like a master class. And then they would start including me in the conversations and stuff and let me in the room. I was allowed to pitch jokes and I got a couple on the show. And then uh, my that writing partner and I wrote a, a Drew Carey that got some attention. And we got it was submitted to this guy, Barton Dean, who that had been on a ton of stuff. Do you know that guy? Yeah, 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 yeah. He was a really nice guy. He had a pilot picked up for CBS called like Odd Man Out or something. And he got three or two backup scripts. And so he hired me and this uh, this uh, my writing partner at the time to write one of those backup scripts, and so that was so that's my what first got you in. gig. Yeah, and then Cat, how? Go ahead, sorry. No, no, that was that. That's the exciting origin story. Okay, you're done, John. Cat. Um, <laughs> so then you moved out specifically interested in animation. Am I right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I did. I um I loved animation. And uh, I came, well, you know, no, initially I moved out to be an actor and then discovered super quickly that I really sucked. I mean, not just like, yeah, not so good. I mean, it was just like sucked in a big way. And so I was like, I love finding that about anything in life, not just acting. When you find out <laughs> you're really terrible at something. Yeah. It's like, and that was my whole plan. And it's like, what, what am I going to do? And um, so I, I, uh, I tried to find some meaning in my life. I worked for a while at AIDS Project Los Angeles, um, which was like kind of when things were really bad uh, and uh, to try to find some meaning in my life. And, and then uh, I finally, I just finally started writing. I realized I had to sit, I was around so many people. This is not a super happy story, but I was around so many people who were dying. I, one of the things I did, I worked for the legal department and I did deathbed wills along with the lawyer. And so it was people who didn't have a will yet and were on the verge. And so this guy, Roger and I would make a trip out to people's houses and do their wills for them. And people would um talk to me and tell me about all the things they wish they had done or hadn't done or you know all of that i was gonna say and, it sounds like a version of my mom we brought in a hospice person and that's what uh -huh. that person's job is going from house to house to house of a dying person i thought what an interesting occupation yeah. it sounds like yours was the same thing 
Yeah, it really was because it's like people were at the end of their lives and they were having to doing a will. They were having to make decisions about things. And I, one of the things I would have to do because it was at the time when pre-gay marriage being legal. And so there would be people who had partners who, you know, once they died, they couldn't leave their stuff to the, the families, some of the families, if they were not happy with the fact that their son or daughter was gay, they would swoop in, they would just inherit everything and leave the former partner out. So one of the things that we were doing were also making sure relationships were formalized and that it was all in the will. And um, and so people would really open up and talk. And I heard so many people say, I never got a chance to do this. I wish I had done this in my life. I wish I had taken that pathway. And I started thinking about what do I wish I had really done? And I was like, I would love to write fart jokes for the rest of my life. <laughs> I was say angry beavers. Angry beavers. <laughs> so, and it really, but it really motivated me to be like, I cannot, it's like, life is short, man. You gotta, you gotta make a decision and you gotta find what you really want to do. And so I, uh, that's what I did. So what was your first job? What was your first writing job? It was on a show that almost no one has seen. And it, uh, you mentioned it. It was with the fantastic Peter Scolari, one of the nicest guys in the world. It was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, the TV show. Was it? Was and, it and I was trying to remember, that was, was that live, live action? action? It was my first live action, not my first animated. My so, first animated was um, Angry Beavers. And, and that Robert. was before Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. That was before Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very good. And I just got to, I got to, I asked you before we went on the air, if it's okay. One of my favorite dysfunctional stories is Kat as a child taking a coffee can to school with her every day. It's one of my favorite stories. And I know at some point you have to put this in something that you two write. But Kat, would you please tell the story? Because it makes me laugh because it's so horrible. <laughs> I had... I was a child who had a very, very nervous stomach. And there was also, uh, I think it's the reason I'm a comedy writer. There was also all kinds of shit going on at home. Lots of tension at home. My parents had a horrible divorce and stuff like that. And I used to get really, really carsick. I lived out in the country and it was like a two, I don't know. It was like an hour drive through the country in the back of a bus getting, and I would throw up on the bus every single morning into a coffee can into the coffee well they that finally, you brought with you. finally gave me a coffee can they and gave had you. a lid on it was it a christmas gift <laughs> <laughs> it, was, yes. it was a maxwell i think it was like a maxwell house coffee can you got me the maxwell house can thank you oh santa <laughs> a clean one a fresh one. Oh, it's clean um, and it would give me the plastic lid and so then I would throw up in the coffee. And no, I was the girl who threw up. I was super skinny, which was, you know, that was fantastic. But uh, I was, nobody wanted to, who wants to sit next to the coffee can girl? Nobody. And so I would throw up on <laughs> the bus every morning. And then again, on the way home every night. And I finally was, I think I was 12 years old when I said, fuck this. I am Whoops. walking the three miles to school every Chat, day. you're rocking today with the language. <laughs> we got two F's and an S. Words. Coffee can with money in it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know what? Uh, just loop me in afterwards. Here's a couple of like, darn this. <laughs> there you go. Screw this. Oh, we can't say that okay, either. There you go. There you go. 
Oh, you can You can say screw this? Yes. Okay. This well, is just going to be a long beeped out section of your radio show right here. <laughs> uh, that is so funny. I, it's just well, Tim, favorite. I remember when you heard that story because you loved it so much. Yeah. And you would imitate Kat, and yeah. radio can't see this, but you would imitate Kat sitting with this coffee cup right at her chin, just kind of very daintily throwing up into it and putting the lid back on. And then at one point, I remember you said, I picture if the two of you were on that same bus, Cat would be sitting near the front, quietly throwing up into the can, and I would be in the back, like, like leading some kind of insurrection with like spitballs <laughs> and fancy people. <laughs> There's nothing in common with how we grew up. <laughs> oh my god, that's so true. It's just one of my favorite images. I th- at some point you really like probably animated you two have to put that in somewhere because it's just <laughs> but then the fact you get to school and clean it out and put the lid back on and, t- and take it home and live another day <laughs> well, my, uh, the, my, my biggest humiliation was one day i didn't have the coffee can and i threw up all over the floor and it was dead of winter oh and which was horrible so and it was on the morning trip to school and when we all got on the bus after school, it was the, the afternoon bus driver got up and he made a huge speech. He's like, somebody threw up on the bus today. No one cleaned it up. And it was frozen to the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to get a bucket full of hot water. I'm just sitting there. Yeah. So today we're going to ice skate on that vomit. <laughs> it, was, it was throw up girl. Who else could it possibly be? Everybody knew. That is so funny. That's the name of the show. Throw up girl. Throw up girl. Um, okay. We're going to take our second break of the day. Mm-hmm. Talking to Kat Lickle and John Hoberg, uh, two great TV writers and now movie writers, which we're going to talk a little bit about, about the world of Pixar when we come back. You are listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Okay, we are back with It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack, talking to Kat Licklin, John Hoberg. That was the theme to the show we met on. My name is Earl, uh, which I just can't explain to people how fun that that particular room was just crazy. Um, and I would just I said to you beforehand, if if anything, any memories from the Earl room, please shout out anything you comes to mind. Well, I I remember I don't know what the t- season one, I feel like uh, if you wore the wrong thing in that room, there was so many funny people that would just quickly have something to say. Yes. And I, I remember at one point I was wearing, I think I'd spent a lot of money on a striped, uh, uh, like Steve McQueen. Do you remember this? Striped shirt. Like from and, Papillon? Uh, was uh, <laughs> Steve McQueen of Papillon when he played the French prisoner. No, I'm sorry. Right. He was a mime. That's Steve McQueen. But, uh, but it was, I don't know, it was some expensive shirt. Like, and, and I came in and before my butt hit the seat, someone said, funny, I don't remember saying Beetlejuice three times. <laughs> That's and it was that kind of room. That kind of room. And I remember I was late one day because I had an appointment of some sort. And I walked down the hall. I was like 45 minutes late or whatever. And someone, I forget who, walked out of the writer's room and they're like, ask Brad Copeland for a price check on peas. And I had no idea what was going on. Yeah. And so I was like, okay. And I walk in the room and the second I saw him, I knew what was going on because he had a white t-shirt 
and like a Hawaiian shirt that yeah. knowing Brad is like this great, you know, he found some great designer and it looked like a Trader Joe's outfit. <laughs> and apparently they've been giving him a uh, cattle fill in the word all morning about it. And uh, so I, I, uh, I just walked. Word. What's that? Cattle fill in the word. <laughs> they, they've been giving him shoot later. all morning. But I came in, I was like, I'd like a price check on peas. And he immediately just ripped his shirt off and threw it away because they had been so ridiculed. <laughs> There's always something crazy going on. And yeah. I loved it. In that you room. always gave me a hard time, Tim, because I always brought my own food to make. Yeah. And you always called it Cat's Kitchen. Cat's Kitchen. She's upstairs in Cat's Kitchen. Cat makes the most beautiful lattes. Like the artwork that goes into Cat's lattes. It's always like, I remember that. It was just like, oh my God, what a treat. <laughs> um, Kat, we can't let Tim get away with the... We uh, So Tim would always have a toothpick in his mouth while yes. he was sitting in that room. Still do. Things and, have not changed. It was one of those rooms where you kind of... You chose your seat on day one, and that was your seat yes. for a hundred episodes, right? And I <laughs> remember the when we moved to the band. Up. Go ahead, sorry. If you chose the wrong place on day one, you yes, were just that was it. That was it. Now you could see the the veterans, like the, the showbiz pros, knew like choose your seat wisely. But Tim was on this sofa most of the time, and he would sit there, and he would you know he'd be pitching, he'd have his arm out over the sofa just casually. None of us noticed that he was just dropping used toothpicks behind it. And then we rearranged the room year two. Yes. And there were probably 300 to 500 toothpicks. You could have started a forest fire with those toothpicks. (laughs) It was like kindling for a fire. Like (laughs) Bobby Bowman, who was our second in charge of the show, was furious with me. Like, I think he wanted to fire me. For the toothpicks. It was so sad. <laughs> it, it felt like a like someone who's like, this is why we can't have nice things. It's because Tim leaves a pile of toothpicks behind the sofa. Now, in my defense, that room was totally in character with the show, which was like downtrodden trailer park white trash. Like that room. I remember I bought a beer clock, a Pabst Blue Ribbon beer clock for the room because it just seemed like. A bad recreation yeah. room in the seventies that somebody in it was, wherever you were from in Kansas, cat. That's like that yeah. kind of room. I felt very at home. It was like my bedroom. <laughs> um, bad paneling. I think yes. it had like some cheap brown, gross carpeting. And hadn't that building been like a missile factory? A stinger or missile factory. Yes. Stinger. And so we we always talked. It's like that place had to be filled with. So much toxic stuff. No, when when the when we all get my mesothelioma or whatever that thing is advertised, <laughs> it's going to be because of that building. Well, and and do you remember the trailer park next door? Because oh. we had that breakfast room downstairs. Yeah, and the, everybody from the trailer park next door would sneak in through the back door of the studio and then steal our bagels and cereal. And ate all the cereal and ate all the cereal from the breakfast room. You'd walk in there and there'd be some guy going. Uh, hi. <laughs> and you're like, uh, I don't remember you on staff. I'm the new, uh, do what I do, uh, I plug, the, I don't, you know, and then they'd run out. But that, that was why we had to get that security guard who would always you come in and be like, hi. Yeah. And, and I, remember, I feel like Kirschenbaum said the way he said hello in the morning was like the two of you were involved in a murder that you were trying to keep quiet. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. He, Sorry. that guy had a job that he was, uh, he was a, 
immigrant guy who would come here and but he watched movies constantly at the front desk. So that's why these people came in and out from the street, because this guy was watching like we would literally bring in VHS tapes for him to watch. He went out and bought a, one of those two in one VHS TV things with headphones. Uh. People are coming and going. You know, and he's watching Pretty in Pink or some 80s movie. He didn't care what you brought in. Just Carlos was his name. Carlos. Carlos. Yeah, he was the nicest guy, though. He was a really good guy. And he was. Uh, Do you remember when the guy, there's somebody parked a camper van behind in the parking lot behind and then hooked up to the building's utilities? No, that sounds perfectly. <laughs> and of awesome. course, I gotta get a... you remember the, st- the story with the guy carrying the jugs of water with me when I went out um, to the car in front. We remember we parked in front there, right? Yeah. In the building. Yeah. You must remember this. I, I'm walking out and the guy sees me and he recognized me from probably some of the beach. And but he's carrying two jugs of water because that's where he gets his water from the corner. He doesn't have it at his home. So or he needs the water to go back and make meth next door at the trailer. <laughs> it's possible right there. And he sees me and he goes, Oh my god, it's you. Hey, it's you. Oh man, you're here. It's you. That's incredible. It's you. And then he looks, he looks around, he looks at my car and he says, I thought you'd drive a better car. <laughs> That was also when you would drive back and you would pour the remnants of your coffee out the window. So it was just streaked. I still do that, too. I feel like it was a a yellow car with brown coffee stains down the side. It was it was. I do remember this. It was a Chrysler Sebring convertible. Because when the guy who's making meth is making fun of me for my car, I said, it's not that bad a car. It's a Chrysler Sebring convertible. Okay, coffee stains. Big deal. I'm surprised there were toothpicks stuck to the coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember the day that uh, DC, who was our PA, who was a wonderful guy, came into the writer's room and went uh, to Michael Penny, one of the other writers, uh, who's hilarious, um, walked in and went, uh, Michael, um, somebody, and Michael had just gotten a brand new car and it was like, um, Michael, um, somebody hit your car. And he, no, like, yeah, he said, he said, uh, Michael, a car just hit your car. <laughs> and we're like, what do you mean a car hit your car? Don't you mean somebody hit his car? And he goes, no, a car. Anyway, sorry, cut. And it was, it, that was, what was that been? What was the road? Balboa. Which one was it? Yeah, Balboa, Balboa. and Satakoy. Yeah, Balboa. Yeah, and uh, it's like some guy, I think it was actually a pickup truck, had been driving down the road and was apparently like high on meth and freaked <laughs> out and ditched his truck while driving in the middle of the road. And he apparently went and hid in the bushes and then his driverless pickup truck careened all the way across the street up a curb and into the that front parking lot at Earl and just creamed Penny's car. It was a brand new car. Yes, it was brand new. That's right. And then the guy was found hiding in the bushes across the street. Across the street, just like hiding behind the bushes. Uh, Yes, I remember that when the cops came. Um, There's just so many things with that show. How are we doing on time, Doctor D? We okay on this Mm -hmm. one? Um, So there's just so many things. I do remember in the beginning that. One of the things when we first started was to sort of come in with stories of like horrible things you had heard people do 
or horrible things you had done yourself to other people. And I remember if there, it was never on the board, but I think if we had contests of like who had done the most horrible things, I think it was me and John neck and neck. Like <laughs> it definitely was like who was going to be king of the mountain by the end. And, and the story I was going through episodes today on, uh, on IMDb and the episode where uh, Earl shot a girl with a BB gun. And yeah. I remember John said that like day one or day two. And it was just that story is in. I don't know when we'll get to it, but that story is in. I think we got the job with that. Maybe that's it. I don't know if we have time for this. Sure. We got the job. We were the last writers hired on Earl and we had read the pilot and it spoke to us. Unlike anything else. We're like, we have to do this. We'd only had two other broadcast network jobs at that point. And I know we got a job offer um, and we turned it down uh, for another show because we wanted Earl so bad. We might've done that twice where our agents like, this is risky guys. You may not be at this level of your career. And then at the time, the clock was ticking down to upfronts and it was a day before upfronts. And we heard that Greg is fully staffed and there was no money anymore in the, in the writing staff. And so we were pretty bummed. And I think we got an offer on the war at home that day for this other show. Yeah. And we're like, I think we're going to go there. And it was kind of a hot show. So that's cool. And then we had a friend over and we were, we'd had a martini and we got a call like 8 PM from Amy Hartwick, the studio person, right. and then uh, our agent saying, hey, Garcia agreed to meet you guys. He read, of all things, he read our Sex of the City and <laughs> loved it, like our spec. And he's like, but the, the catch is you got to get to his house by 8 a.m. And, you know, we're on opposite ends of the city right. tomorrow morning. And he's like, it's and Earl is the most sought after show. So you should come in with stories like you better come in with some ideas just to try to wow him. And so we stayed up until like one in the morning, yeah. two in the morning doing that. I, had, I actually had a friend visiting me, um, a friend from San Francisco was like visiting me for the weekend. And this happened, I think it was, and, and um, Deirdre was like, she's like, you guys work. I'll make you dinner. I'll make you coffee. Oh, so it's yeah. like, she just all evening, just like primed us with coffee and we worked all okay. night. I remember we showed up and and uh, and Greg was you know he's just he's so funny and lively when we never met him before I don't know yeah. what we were picturing and it, we immediately just adored interacting with him and we had had we had like five or six things that we brought up that were based on our real life and I think that was one of them and you could see him be like I, I that's got to be in yeah. the show somehow no that I remember those first couple of days people are pitching stuff about things that you know bad things they had done. Um, no, but, but the Earl thing was, it was just really special and, and got to meet you guys. And then you hired Doyle and uh, it was just, um, it was just great. So we are going to take our final break right now. Uh, I do want to, before I go, we're going to talk about the Pixar thing when we come back. Uh, cause I want to promote okay. that and hear about that. I haven't had a chance to, uh, promote sprung Greg Garcia's show. Thank God for Greg Garcia. Um, we wouldn't be here today. The three of us without him but uh, the new show sprung on amazon freebie it's doing really really well we think it might get a second year so we'll say that but it was super fun to work on and got to go to pittsburgh like john and cat did so uh we're going to take a break i'm talking to john hoberg and cat lickle you're listening to it's radio with tv's tim stack Hey, it's Tim Stack, and having been in show business for so long, I have a lot of really funny friends, and you can hear them all on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. That's part of the Jeremiah Show. So listen. Way back 
of all, there was a legend told about a hero known as Galavan. Sweat on perfect hair. Call it out to them. There was no hero with a Galavan. Top plus every other manly value. I remember you, I'm talking to John Hoberg and Cat Lickle about uh, the Gallivant song. I remember when you sent a tape, you had uh, Alan Menken uh, playing, or maybe Doyle sent it. He recorded it because he would, he oh, would yeah. bring the writers in to uh, record, so- to play songs for the show that he had written. Is that right? Yeah. 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 It's like we would have, uh, yeah, Alan came in and he, he would, he would go when we were doing it. Um, because uh, he, he would, we were shooting it in England, so we were living in Bristol, and there's a great recording studio there, and that's when for every actor or character who had a song, we would go to this really, really good studio, um, and uh, uh, and Alan would, Alan came sometimes, didn't he? And he did, he he did early, but I think you're talking about. Uh, when we had like a week, so we'd be in London, uh, uh, Los Angeles still. And so the, we'd have, you'd have to get the whole show figured out the whole season, like two weeks after the pickup, you needed to know everything. So Alan and Glenn Slater, the lyricist could start ma- writing the songs. And so then we brought in, uh, and this was Vogelman did this year one and we carried it on. And it was like, you bring Alan and Glenn in for just a solid week with the writers and you talk through this, the um, season gotcha. and then they song spot. Right. But as a treat at the end of that, Alan would play this, the melody of his songs that like he played for Lincoln Center. But it's yes. just you in the room with Alan. Yes, that's and what I'm thinking of. It was so just, special. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, I remember Doyle sent a tape and he was like, don't tell anybody I recorded this. <laughs> yeah. um, I, did, I was recording stuff on my phone all the time because, you, you know, it, it just it was. And now Alan is like, we're, you know, we're friendly with Alan and we yeah. we you know, I'm working on another project with him and it's, it's just, it's, it, I don't know. It's like, Alan is amazing. Oh, it's special. I mean, you're around someone who is the best at what they do. Yeah. That's a, that I, I know the feeling having spent so much time with Howard Stern, who was, you know, like the best at what he does. You may not like him or whatever, but it's, it's unbelievable what he does. And it's crazy to be around that. Cause you think like, wow, you're human. <laughs> But um, let's go back a little bit. So how did, because you're a husband and wife writing team, which is interesting. It's not that, you know, you're not the first or the last, but it's interesting. So how did you, like, were you together on a show and then started dating or you met outside of a show? No, we met at a Halloween party in LA. Like, um, I moved out with that other writing partner and I was living in that Beverly Fairfax area with like a bunch of friends. We were all in our you know, early twenties, right. didn't know if we were ever going to, and, uh, there was, we heard there was going to be a huge Halloween party. Of, uh, it was almost like park La Brea, like one of these big compound kind of places. And so we decided to crash it. And for some reason, a friend had had like a Gatsby party, but everybody was so poor. So it's like the guys just had a jacket and a tie on. Like that was, that was our great Gatsby. And then I remember, so like four of us dressed with jackets and ties decided let's go. And then a, a female friend of ours was dressed like a flapper. So that was the four of us and uh-huh. a flapper. And we show up and it's one of those Hollywood parties where like people have put six months into planning their costumes. Um, and it turns out it was a lot of Disney animators and stuff who uh-huh. had, 
And so we're like, well, what do we, what do we, what are we? Like, we need a costume because people are going to ask. And a friend of mine had just read that book, The Agency, about William Morris Agency. Right. And he's like, why don't we just say our costume is we're a team of CAA agents because they were known for traveling in packs and wearing suits. And so we're like, okay, that's our costume. And it was the greatest costume I've ever had in my life because like streams of kind of BS was just pouring out of it as you try to sign the different, like I'm signing Guinevere. And, and so anyway, I'm talking to the Grinch, guy full body, head to toe, Grinch outfit and uh, kind of signing, you know, the Grinch. And all of a sudden, right in my point of view comes this woman wearing like a Marge Simpson sized like restoration wig uh-huh. and it's Kat. And she whips into like my point of view. And the first thing Kat ever said to me is, hey, uh, <laughs> and she was dressed as Maul Flanders. Like who goes dressed as Maul Flanders to anything? <laughs> she's a literary <laughs> And she goes, uh, she's like, Maul Flanders and the Grinch are a package team. End of discussion. So that was the first thing Kat ever said to me. That's how I met her. Boy, there's a sign. One of us, we sign one. You got to sign the other. Yeah, <laughs> there's a come online. That's right. Um, we, we just started talking and uh okay, yeah, so I then you have... started dating and then you were found out you're both writers and blah blah blah, and then John got a script. So then when did you decide like well let's write together, let's be a writing team? How did that well, first happen? I vowed I would never be part of a writing team because it's like being a female, a solo female writer, especially in animation, it's like because that was just such a guy place so being a solo female writer i was very proud of that and i was like we may date we may get married but we're never going to team up that was (laughs) people thought they're like oh it's so cute but then we would help each other with scripts and and then at one point cindy shupak uh flew us both out to she had a show called madigan men a pilot and so she flew us out there to new york to do punch up on that and it was we were really scared because it's like oh god like what if you know, you don't know what you're going to say as a married couple in a writer's room. And I mean, as you know, it's like you can really accidentally divulge something that you're ridiculed for. Yeah. Life for. Yeah. We could ruin our relationship. Let know? me tell you about my wife. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like I forgot so you were here. <laughs> we discovered like we we could one up each other's stories and we have such different backgrounds and, and points of view. And I think the biggest thing we noticed is we don't get embarrassed about talking about private stuff in front of people. Right. And suddenly it was like, wow, this is a one plus one equals three kind of situation. And I think we came home from that. There was another year of writing some stuff. And then we're like, let's write a pilot together. And then we did. And we were staffed on Hope and Faith within, you know, three months after we did that together. Yeah. Something about the two of us together is better. And so did you have the same agent like did you have to then like did somebody get their agent fired and you went with somebody else i don't even remember how that happened i oh i remember we had gone i had gone with it was uh, cindy's agent at the time who sort of hip pocketed me and that other guy yeah and then kind of kept me on and then kat you went over to him too i don't want to say the names and uh And then we were feeling completely separately, completely forgotten. Um, Kat, uh, Kat was rising through the ranks of uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, but that should have been able to spin her off into a, a bigger thing. Right. And it just wasn't. And so I think we both let go of this guy and got a manager at Industry Entertainment, this woman, Helena Heyman, who is incredible. Right. We're still yeah. with her. 
And we met her and she's like, she read this thing we wrote together. She's like, here's the plan. I think we gave it to her in September. And she's like, here's the plan. We're going to get this out. You're going to get a job on a sitcom by, you know, June. Away we go. She had this whole plan. We were kind of like, oh, great, great. We've heard that before. And everything she said happened. Um, oh, that's yeah, great. She got, she, she, yeah, it was amazing. So when we're still with her, she's still our manager. And then we um, ended up getting a, a, we had a really crappy agent at the time. Yeah. Nice guy, bad agent. And um, and then we ended up getting a fantastic. Here's a great detail about him. I got to tell this. Sorry. Yeah. All right. We came in for one of those, like, we're going to tell you what you're going to do. And here's how your life's going to be great and all that. And so we noticed every time he would say the word opportunity, it actually came out as opportunity. And like, he, he would be like, well, we're going to get lots of opportunities for you this year. And we're going to da da da. And I think your greatest opportunity is, and we didn't, we didn't say anything. He was in Westwood or something and we're driving back. That's not even close. Opportunity. (laughs) That's the one word your agent should be able to say. It's opportunity. (laughs) We're driving back. And I remember Kat just goes, did he say opportunity? <laughs> and we decided that, that if we wanted an agent, he we wanted him to know how to say opportunity correctly. It's like seems kind of important for your agent to know to be able to like, Do we have time? I have a manager meeting story with yeah. I went I meet with this manager and um, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. It's this company called New Wave Management. And now they're very good. The guy who did this is no longer there. His name I'm not going to mention. But I go there for this meeting and I see people filing into this conference room. And I'm telling you, then they bring me in and there's 20 people in this meeting, in this conference room. <laughs> well, it turns out New Wave Management was also connected to New Wave Post Production. So I have this meeting with these 20 people, and there are a lot of people that don't seem that interested in what I'm, in what I'm saying. <laughs> what turns out what this manager does is he brings people in from these editing bays to act, to act like they're going to be one, part of my management team. So he fills <laughs> off a conference room. And I kept, Genius. Saying, Genius. I kept saying, what do those people do? And he said, don't, they will not be your point people. Don't worry about them. <laughs> And then another like, guy. What about the guy dressed as a chef? Is he going to be my point person? <laughs> Him I like. <laughs> How about the guy who took my car keys in the parking lot? Yeah. So uh, that's wow, the world. Really funny. Um, so so you start writing together. I did have one question about when your agent or rep refers to you. Are you Lickle and Hoberg or Hoberg and Lickle? First Lickle Hoberg. Lickle and Hoberg. I was, I was thinking today, like, Kat said my name goes I first. Like, I was like, I left a solo writing career right. to team up with you. My name goes first. Lickle and Hoberg. It does sound a little bit like a malpractice, like medical malpractice law firm. Yeah. <laughs> we get those calls. So yeah. I always <laughs> broke my leg. Lickle and Hoberg got me $6,000. I would say it must be a political move on Kat's part uh, that she didn't take my name because she kept Lickle. <laughs> it's a fine dutch name john no it's um, a wonderful name so we're gonna now let's jump forward many many years you've had all these great tv shows and then an opportunity comes along to write a pixar film so can you just talk about like how that happened and why you were interested and maybe even a little what the process was like 
Yeah. Well, it's kind of we like this. Found, right? Oh, sorry. Go yeah. Ahead. It's kind of like the CAA. They, you don't apply. You don't submit. They find you. And we, I think, suddenly got a phone call that um, they wanted to meet us. Oh, you know, I think we were on, we were doing something at the Austin Film Festival. And so they put your bios in there. And then there's this, this woman, uh, Mary Coleman, who I think has moved, she has moved on, but she's amazing. And she had talked to Dan Fogelman in 2012 about writers that maybe she should think about. And uh, he had mentioned us, like whatever that was, seven years before. And then she saw our names and like, let's have a meeting. And um and we sat down and it was one of the, you know, how you have a meeting and you're kind of, you're like, okay, well, I'm going to have coffee with someone. You just kind of assume it's like, yeah, you'll talk and then you'll never talk again. Right. You know? But then you can tell right away when you sit down, like, oh, they're serious. And we sat down and they had had scripts of ours with like our names on the binder and they were talking and they wanted to talk shop and were really interested. And then they were telling us about the process, which is you move up to Pixar and you have to work there. And um, they talked about the process of what it is. And they're like, are you interested in that? And we were like, without a doubt. And, and Mary is like, we, you know, we don't know. I mean, maybe it'll be a year from now. Maybe it's a week from now. You just don't know. It's what our needs are. So and I think three weeks later or something, we got a call that, and they, they've been reading our scripts and we were sending kind of more and more targeted stuff looking back, like, oh, that's right. more on the topic, but they won't tell you what the movie is, by the way. Yeah. It's super and, secret. Yeah, it's so secret. And then we got a call, like, can you guys come up to Pixar? Because uh, we want you to have lunch with the director. And we're like, yeah. So it's like a car shows up at seven in the morning, takes you to the airport. You fly Southwest because everybody at Pixar, they, that was the tradition when they would fly down for pitch, pitch meetings on Toy Story and stuff. You show up, they have a car there and you, you get to the, the, the lot. There's a huge lamp and someone waiting, you know, for you. So, and you're whisked in, you get a little tour, you meet the director. And then you're home by six. It's like this That's whirlwind. So like, did it yeah, even happen? Yeah, it's sort of like this. Yeah, and then you sit and you sit and talk to the director, and you don't even know. We don't. You know, you have no idea. They're very secretive about what their movies are and what's coming up. They keep it all really under wraps. So even as we're talking to this director, um, uh, we had no idea what the movie possibly. Wow. Or no, or did, did we had we read something at that point? No, we hadn't. We hadn't because uh, they, they're all different. Like each director is different. And I think our, our director, we just he wanted to just kind of get our our vibe, I think. And, right. And it was great. We all hit it off right away. But the process, I, I'll buzz through the process if you want to hear it, because it's, it's we, sadly, I'm getting the signal from Dr. D that we have run out of time. OK, so that was you going like, give him the just, signal. No, just he, in time he did this symbol i don't know what that means but that's what he said 30 seconds oh it means 30 uh, seconds leave a message. Leave so a now message. we're down Anybody's to 10 curious, seconds leave a message on our INB. let's i want to hear the process you'll have to come back right yeah they'll come back yeah there's part two to this yeah we can get them on zoom um <laughs> this has been such a treat thank you john and kat so much for being on the show thank you jeremiah next to me there for always doing what you do. Thank you, Dr. D. You've been listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. I'll see you in the new year. To our station manager, Les Carroll, for letting us on the air at all. Listeners, we appreciate you and want to hear from you. Please send us your ideas at jeremiah at thejeremiahshow.com or on Messenger, on Facebook, or Instagram. The show is produced by executive producer Jeremiah Higgins. And me, your announcer, Tony Kelly.